Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So, good evening. It's nice to be back. I just I just came home from a five-day silent, four-day silent retreat in Wisconsin, and uh, I was on three airplanes today, so I got to really prepare, which can go either way. Um, and um, the, this month here has just been so rich. Uh, the two weeks of working on a koan together, and then was it last week we did the group? practices together, and uh, really checking in on uh, what our intention is for being here in this room, and uh, sharing with each other some of the thorns that are coming up in our practice, and, uh, and then the last partner exercise we did last week was um, working on how inten- our intention for being here in this space can actually help us work with some of the thorns that are showing up in our lives. And, and so from that, I want to take uh, some of the themes that came up and, and try and work with them uh, a little bit. Um, so I actually gave the talk a title while I was on my laptop today. It had two titles. One was called The Ego, and the other was called The Inner Child Never Grows Up. I'll work with the latter, I think. Um, the ego, by the way, you know, is a, it comes from a, a, a Freud. Originally, it was a German term, das. I don't know how to pronounce it. Ich or ich. Ich. Um, I don't know German. Um, which, you know, when you, when, you, when you kind of get a sense of what Freud meant by the ego, it was kind of a fluid thing. It wasn't that structural. Um, but Freud had a translator named uh, James Strachey, and he... Uh, uh, in the late 20s and early 30s, he, he translated a lot of Freud's terms into Latin and, and Greek terms, which were not terms that Freud used. So Freud never actually used the term ego. Um, and unfortunately, the term ego is a little more structural than I, than I think what, what Freud might have meant. Um, so uh, I want to talk a little bit about what the ego is, because we've been talking a lot about masks. And um, from a spiritual perspective, or from a Buddhist perspective, maybe it's better to say, um, the, the ego is really the, the self's attempt to grasp itself. 
And we're always trying to grasp ourselves somehow, to get a sense of what we are, and to, to create a kind of boundary around our experience to make meaning and make sense of things. And um, for Freud, originally, his, his initial idea of the self, this is all the way back to 1923, um, or the ego, is basically um, to, to manage unconscious drives. And um, Freud had this idea that, that anything that uh, a sense of self can't accept in its identity was kind of relegated uh, first to the preconscious, which is kind of like the part of the unconscious that you have access to, and then uh, also parts to the unconscious, which are the parts that the ego does not have access to. And part of that's very healthy, actually. Um, there are things that are overwhelming for our organism, and psychologically we need to take experiences, like for example when trauma happens, and kind of uh, manage it somehow. So there's something really positive about this. Um, but later as Freud developed this concept uh, after he started working with people, because originally this concept was before he was really doing a lot of clinical work, um, he had this idea, he started to develop this idea that actually it's not just um, um, drives that are unconscious or in the pre-conscious, but actually defenses too. So all the defense mechanisms that we have in order to uh, manage some of our, uh, what Freud thought were unconscious fantasies, um, were also uh, kind of relegated to this unconscious. And you get the sense sometimes that there's like this unconscious is this like box back here with like a, you know, a, a, um, a, a combination lock that only your parents have access to, you know. Um, and um, in a way, I, I think what mindfulness meditation, which is mostly what we're doing together, does is, is a, it creates a kind of resilience in the ego. And it allows us to, in a healthy way, have access to some of what goes on in the pre-conscious. And I think for any kind of person, um, it's possible to use mindfulness practice with, with great benefit. Because what it does is it, it gives us proximity to the parts of ourselves that can be overwhelming. And for any of us who've spent time sitting still, you know that when you sit still, uh, usually we want peace to just show up. But, but that's not what shows up when we do the practice that we're exploring. You laugh. I'm glad you're laughing. Um, and over time, even the best meditators have old wounds that show up. And you can tell that your practice is working when these wounds start showing up. And um, I think for basic mindfulness practices, like tending to the breath, it's helpful for everybody. You know, when I, when I was seeing more people one-on-one, -on -one, I worked with a young boy who was schizophrenic. He was 17 years old. And um, he... Uh, we, all, we mostly worked on meditation practice. 
and uh, we had like these two systems. One was he had a card in his pocket. We had two, there was like two rules. Number one is keep the card in your pocket. And the card was meditation instructions that he wrote in his own handwriting. So that as he started to feel like he was a little overwhelmed and we identified what started to overwhelm him, he could catch it right at the beginning. And the second rule was um, find a bench. So as soon as you start feeling overwhelmed, find a bench, take out the card, and, and try and anchor yourself uh, using your own breath. And this was so uh, uh, possible for him. Not only was it possible, it was very empowering for him to, to find a technique. And it didn't always work, but it worked enough that it gave him a kind of uh, inner strength. You know? And he used to call it, I uh, gave him armor. We don't think of meditation as armor in a way, but he said it gave him protection. You know, it gave him protection or confidence. And um, um, I think we all need this. We, we need uh, to have those raw parts of ourselves protected so that we have a way of kind of being guided towards them. That's safe. And uh, as you start to practice more, some of these old patterns that have been in the pre-conscious get constellated. And, uh, and they start to show up. And um, um, I think that as these mindfulness practices, some of you, we've studied the Satipatthana Sutta. Well, as you start getting to the fourth foundation of mindfulness, it's pretty deep stuff. And it's going to, to, to dredge up... Um, um, old patterns and habits and emotions. And, uh, and so I just wanted to, to sort of get into that stuff a little bit tonight, but I'm not going to ask you to do any partner exercises. We'll do that next week, maybe. Um, after Freud, uh, Harry Stack Sullivan and Fairbairn and eventually Winnicott started developing another model of how the personality uh, works which is not so, if you actually listen to a lot of James Strachey's uh, uh, language, it's very kind of militaristic, it's like defense mechanisms, and, you know, it's like military language, you know. And this model, this next school called themselves object relations. And their basic idea was that the building blocks of the self are actually relational. And it starts with the way that an infant manages um, affective experience, which basically means emotions. And for example, when a child is, or when an infant is first with a mother or a caregiver, they can't tell the difference between where they end and where the mother or other begins. And um, what happens is sometimes the child is hungry, for example, and needs a breast, and there isn't one. You know? And somehow the child has to manage this space that Winnicott called the transitional space. And the way Winnicott said a, a child manages this usually is with the corner of a blanket. You know? Just taking the corner of the blanket and using it in that particular space. And, um, and then sometimes there is no space. So the other is smothering. And there is no space to find that. 
And for Winnicott, that actually was like the first self-other relationship that then becomes internalized and actually forms the way one as an adult bonds with people. And I'm not going to get, get too far into that, but I think you can start to see the, the pattern a little bit, you know. And um, um, actually, I've always thought this is an incredible model of the psychology of meditation. Because in meditation practice, in a way, uh, as we start to practice, we kind of enter this transitional space. Where we're practicing and different emotions and feelings are coming up and we need an object. We need a transition, we need a technique or we need other people. Um, I've had the experience I like to tell once of being on a retreat and uh, there were a lot of grains in the floor and I spotted just in front of me uh, the image in the grains of Bob Dylan in 1965. You know what he looked like then with the shades and everything. And I was with him for three days. <laughs> and then, uh, and it, you know, the retreat was pretty good, you know. But then on the fourth day, they cleaned the hall and my cushion got moved six inches. So when I looked forward, I didn't have him anymore. And if you, I tried to see him from an angle, I couldn't find <laughs> Dylan anywhere. <laughs> and actually, this took about two days to recover. <laughs> I was, it was deeply upsetting, and, and, it has, and, and I started reflecting, actually, on this idea, then on that retreat, of the transitional object, the way my mind <coughs> needed something to be obsessed with, you know? And actually, in a way, this is the ego. This is that part of ourselves that needs to grasp experience somehow, and the fear, actually, that came up for me not having Dylan. And I think that's just a microcosm of so many of our lives and all the different ways we, we need a bridge, you know, in order to get through an experience. Um, so these deep affective memories, these deep emotions that we have actually structure the self. And later, especially in New York, as psychoanalysis became more run by women, um, a, a kind of new idea emerged, which is that uh, not only are we relating to these internal objects, but actually the self is totally relational. So that all the relationships we have now are all we are. That all the ego is, is relationship. But that sometimes for us where we get stuck is we can't separate present relationships from the deep patterns of past relationship. I think we've all, we all know this. Yeah. Um, so they take this idea of like, because if, you know, and you look at old object relations, all the theories have like these objects are like these squares and they're in the personality and they kind of bang into each other and there's like triangles connecting mother, internal mother, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and in relational psychoanalysis, the idea is more like networks. That there's these networks 
of relationships inside of us that are bound together with deep emotions. Deep emotions. And uh, we turn each other into uh, parents, siblings. We act this out all the time. Often we don't see it. Um, And all those internalized networks come together and correspond to the category of me. So what I think about as me are actually, is all this content plugged in to these internalized patterns based on early relationships. I could go deeper into that, but I just want to kind of sketch this out a little bit to get to what I want to get to uh, tonight. And... um, From the Buddhist perspective, this is totally true, except that we're not stuck with it. It's all malleable. And so it's not like there's this one pattern in the background that's influencing everything, but it's that the pattern gets constellated in conditions. So the core teaching of the Buddha is that everything is dependently originating, that nothing is static, That even those patterns that we think are so static actually only show up in certain configurations. So in one particular configuration, I'm angry. And in another configuration, I'm jealous. And in another configuration, I'm terrified. But actually, you're not always angry. And you're not always terrified. Especially those of us who always think, you know, I'm depressed. You know, and there isn't anybody who's always depressed or always psychotic or always angry. But this happens in certain configurations. Um, Are we clear so far? Yeah. And so in psychoanalysis, the idea is, you know, if you really want to enter into uh, some of these emotions, you need what are called ego strengths. And uh, Jack Engler in 1981, you know, coined this term, you have to be a somebody before you can be a nobody. So we need certain developmental strengths. And um, the truth is, and I think I didn't want to admit this for a long time, that having deep experiences in meditation uh, don't solve those really deep developmental and relational Uh, patterns in us. And I think a lot of us wish that meditation really did. Maybe you still do. Um, And actually, it's interesting in the Zen tradition, um, there's this idea of gradual enlightenment. And you also find this in early Theravada tradition too, that actually enlightenment has many stages And you can actually have deep experiences of realization and not work out really basic developmental and relational patterns. And I think sometimes we have these ideas that, you know, these enlightenment experiences people have, and some of you have had, you know, uh, important experiences, especially on retreat, are somehow going to get rid of all that stuff. And there's a psychologist in California named John Wellwood who came up with this term spiritual bypassing, (laughs) which is actually using your practice 
to avoid, to avoid um, some of the real relational work that we all need to do. And not only to hope that your practice is going to, you know, get rid of that stuff, um, but to actually act in a way where that stuff's going to go away. And that's easy to do when you don't have a community. And as soon as you're in community, um, it's all downhill. (laughs) Um, Right now, to plan the new center of gravity, uh, we have a lot of meetings. So we have a board of directors and meetings, meetings, meetings. Uh, my my friend said to me, who was in one of these meetings last week, she said, she knows me very well. Do you ever watch a movie and you start realizing you can see the whole plot and you can see where it's going and then it's really hard to watch? She said, that's what it's like watching you in a meeting. <laughs> I... I've, I've, been, I've never been a meeting person, so now I'm in meetings and it's awful. I become really impatient. If food is served, I eat you know, so fast. And, I, and I've realized how, how hard it is actually when there's a group of people and we all have equal input for me to actually participate. <laughs> and I just can't get out of there fast enough. <laughs> And, uh, and the worst part is everyone sees it. <laughs> you know? um, meditation hasn't helped me with it. <laughs> at all. Um, and, you know, in a deeper way, we also all know stories, especially in the, in the uh, 70s and 80s, of spiritual communities that completely fell apart. Because people were having, you know, these uh, peak or mystical experiences, but then at a deep level there was real psychological work that was not getting done. And so some of you wrote me emails about how wonderful it was working in partners last week, sharing what's going on for you in your practice. And some of you wrote me emails how much you hate it. And someone said, they're not here. Uh, Could you... Could you tell us, could you email me in advance next time if you know we're going to do any group work? Um, So, one of the things that mindfulness practice gives us, though, is the ability to see when one of those patterns is constellated. We might not understand it. We might in that moment not know how to work with it, but we can have just enough distance that we can feel what's going on and we can be anchored without being completely identified with it. This is so important. So we may not understand it. We may not know where it comes from. We may not... But we can recognize, because we know what our mind is like, and we have some stability, when we're caught. And um, sometimes the places that we get most caught, where the emotions are the strongest, are from these really old patterns. 
And I know it's not cool to talk about your inner child, but I'm going to. And say that your inner child never grows up, will never go away. That practice is not going to get rid of those uh, feelings that your inner child I loved saying it because I critique this word for so many years. Um, but when I'm in a meeting, I am nine years old. And so there's a practice you can do is to find your breathing. And when you're caught, you can say to yourself, how old am I right now? How old am I right now? And to really stop and I'm six years old. What does it feel like to be six years old right now? And in doing so, you're actually taking care of what you're feeling. And I think, you know, a lot of us, like, we don't want to do this, right? We just, we want to kind of like push it over here. And in order for our practice to really mature and not just be deep, but also be wide, um, we have to include these parts of ourselves that maybe we have neglected, or that maybe are really young, or that maybe are kind of embarrassing. Because most of us, to be successful in this city, you have to develop a kind of um, persona. And if you don't develop it, other people will develop one for you. (laughs) You And as we were talking about last week, you know, the the capping verse to the koan is, uh, don't let a mask stick to your face. But the thing is, the nature of the ego is to keep sticking the mask to the face. And so to recognize that we're always going to have these masks, and it's healthy to have them. Everybody should have a costume trunk. What, a tickle trunk or whatever? (laughs) Yeah. Um, But the problem is, is when it sticks to you. (coughs) When we're caught. So... At the same time, to really deepen our practice, we need to take care of that stuff. And mindfulness is the beginning of starting to take care of it. But we also need to work with it relationally. You know, it's like some people say, I have so many relationship problems, so I'm just not going to get into them anymore. I have a friend who moved to a monastery for this reason and then wrote me an email and said, I've never been angry until I moved to a monastery. (laughs) Where you actually have to live with with people. Um, Rumi has a wonderful line. He says, whoever travels without a guide needs 200 years for a two-day journey. 200 years for a two-day journey. So in a way, this practice is a guide. The guide that's been handed out tonight is a guide. And it's encouraging you to make your practice real. This is the term realization. That's why I use that term more than enlightenment. Because realization means to make things real. To make your life real. And uh, I've done it. Spiritual bypassing is really easy for a few years. Uh, I think the reason why I started meditating is because I had this idea that if I really got concentrated, I wouldn't feel anything. And it actually worked. 
uh, until it didn't anymore. <laughs> and then it really didn't work. <laughs> you know? And uh, most of us uh, were really attracted to the, the peak states. And I ask those of you who've been on, you know, more long-term retreat, you know, when, when you remember, like, those experiences you had of real stillness, you know, and then to also recognize it's not here now. You know, those experiences come and they go. And there, there's a wonderful uh, scholar named Agananda Bharti who, who talks about how mystical experience has no meaning. It doesn't have any meaning and it's not useful. It's kind of a controversial thing to say. But it's not useful unless it can be integrated. And where does it need to get integrated? Into the areas that we're bypassing. The areas that don't fit. The parts of your life that are not spiritual. I'm sure nobody in this room is doing this, but... Um, a few years ago I went to Buffalo to meet with uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama and uh, while we were there there was a a physicist there it was the Mind Life meeting and um, uh, a group of physicists there were eight of us and uh, everybody was a scientist except me I think I I got invited by accident (laughs) and uh, and, and they said to him, um, um, uh, randomness exists. Randomness exists. This is what these physicists were working on, is randomness and natural patterns. And, uh, and the Dalai Lama said, that's not grainy enough. It's a really good moment. That's not grainy enough. I didn't understand what he meant. So the translators are going back and forth. Granular? <laughs> granular? And then the physicist said, no, randomness. Randomness. And actually, his English is not that good, actually. But um, he said, no, not grainy enough. And, and they're really frustrated. <laughs> and then the Dalai Lama started getting frustrated. And then he just said to them, you're not paying close enough attention. So really good. So they had this idea, you know, randomness exists. And he was trying to push them a little bit. You're not paying close enough attention. You're not paying close enough. And I think this happens a little bit for us. You know, we have an experience of some emotions. And instead of feeling them, we just go, oh, this, I'm in pain, you know. I'm sad, you know. And it's not grainy enough. It's not really entering what we're feeling. It's just kind of being like an overview psychologist. You know? How many of us are like psychotherapists to ourselves? And the first time you feel something, what you do is you just start analyzing it. And if you've had any training in psychotherapy, it's really bad. Well, in psychoanalysis, it's really bad. Because then you start analyzing, you, know, you can see all the objects and where it comes from. And you can do this without feeling anything, actually. Sometimes I wonder why yoga and meditation are so popular. Because they actually make people feel things. How could that ever be popular? I don't know how I could ever, but 
it really makes you feel and the spectrum of your feeling increases and you see this on retreat a lot when people i'm talking about retreat because i was i just came from there but where people finally get some stillness and they come in for an interview and they said and you can hear that they're really really still and as soon as this happened i'm learning now that that's when the flag should go up because as soon as you get really calm it lasts for like a couple days and then the shaft of awareness drops down again because it's like you now have enough stability that it can dredge deeper because you're strong enough you know there's this quaker saying you know god never gives you too much to handle it's a little bit like that um I remember one time on retreat going to a teacher and saying, you know, I'm noticing that thoughts are coming and they're going and the instruction was, okay, now feel in your body where that comes from. So I was still and I, I could actually like feel in my body a thought coming and then kind of, it, it kind of like turned to pixels. And then so I went in and I said, okay, I, I, I can see the thoughts coming and then I can see it come apart. And then he said, and now follow that thought and watch all the ways it comes apart. And then do this with feelings. When feelings arise, watch feelings show up. And then try and keep the attention going to watch all the ways the feelings disperse, where they move in the body, how they turn into something. It's really hard. It's very easy to watch things arise. But it's much harder to concentrate on how they start to come apart. And I, you know, I'm not teaching too much tonight on impermanence, even though it's in the, in the background. But the point is how much attention you can really give to what you're experiencing. How much attentiveness with your whole body. And sometimes we can't do it by ourselves. And we need some help. Because maybe our psychological pattern is that there are certain constellations that happen and you can't digest them yourself. There's too much anxiety or there's too much pain. And in no culture does anybody do it alone. There's always a shaman or a rainmaker or, or somebody there to support you. And, uh, and this is really, really important to be able to know when we need support because sometimes we can't digest what we're experiencing all by ourselves. So we do the best we can with concentration and then we also notice where we need uh, support. I, I, I want to go a little more deeply into this, but I just want to make sure I haven't lost anyone or because I'm, I, you know, I'm kind of talking tonight. Yeah. Any questions or. Okay. Um, the next thing I wanted to say about the inner child is, is just about, uh, I want to say it as much as inner child, inner child, <laughs> um, is that, um, Awareness or, or mindfulness or attention, if you want to call it attention, 
attention is not unidirectional. So I think sometimes we have this idea that like attention comes from me and it goes towards the object. But actually, the object is affected by our attention and our intention. And we know this obviously with people, right? When you really give someone attention, uh, there's, you know, mirror neurons. There's all kinds of ways scientists nowadays talk about it. But uh, a mutuality arises, right? There's a lot of uh, work, you know, studying mindfulness-based stress reduction programs and how um, uh, people who finish an eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction program, they're studying who continues to meditate and who never meditates again, or who does for three weeks and then (coughs) drops off. And they're finding overwhelmingly that the the people who keep meditating after are people who took the course with an instructor who has a committed and long-term meditation practice. Which is very interesting, right? We feel in somebody's presence the value of a practice. It's like apprenticeship works like this. But at an internal way, when you give attention to your inner child, inner child, Um, it actually works both ways. And that constellation actually gives attention to where you're at. You know, in Tibetan Buddhism, this is called self-liberation. That actually whatever's arising liberates itself, which is a really nice, nice model. So the more you give attention to what you're feeling... And, and you're not trying to escape, even if it's being in pain, then uh, that pain starts to soften as you start to soften towards it. And this is really important to remember. Really, really important. It's not just you're giving something, to, you're giving attention to an emotion and it's just stuck. Uh, in the same way that another person is affected by your presence, when you presence what you're feeling, um, it changes. And the other way around. That as soon as you find that there is something that you keep meeting that you can't stay connected to, um, sometimes we need another person to just help hold us there so that we can start to gain some relationship with what it is that's um, torturing us. Barzan. Yes. I think I missed did you say to watch the feeling or to control it by when you said if you have a soft attitude towards it, that's yeah. controlling it in some ways. Is that what you're saying? We're trying to meet what we're feeling um, as we're feeling it um, without being fully identified with it, but feeling it. So this idea sometimes people use in meditation of like the witness Witnessing, I don't like using that word so much. Um, So a sense of like, you have enough distance that you can relate to what you're feeling, and at the same time, um, you're feeling it. As being like over here. That's the feeling coming and going, and I'm just detached. So no steering it. Just feeling. No, sometimes you're going to steer it. Yeah. Okay. yeah. 
sometimes you can only feel little bits of it at a time. Yeah. Uh, this summer I was reading um, in the in the realm of finding ghosts. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. I think he he kind of talks about what you're talking about as yeah. passionate curiosity. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. I want to read you what the Buddha says. Um, this is uh, from his teachings on mindfulness from the Majjhima Nikaya. Um, he asked this question. What is the faculty of mindfulness? There is a case where a bhikkhu, which is you, the word bhikkhu means beggar, which is somebody who goes out with their alms bowl. Um, where a bhikkhu, uh, that's you, and your inner child, a disciple of the noble ones, is mindful, highly meticulous, remembering and able to call to mind even things that were done and said a long time ago. So for those of you who think that mindfulness is all about the present moment, the Buddha is saying actually there's also retrospective mindfulness, where you can actually take being fully here in present experience and bringing that attentiveness to something that was said or done a long time ago. She remains focused on the body in and of itself, ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. She remains focused on feelings just as they are, as thoughts just as they are, as the quality of mind just as it is, and alert putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. This is called the faculty of mindfulness and the end of stress. I love this. I love this passage. The part that's important is in and of themselves. So when he says uh, the body in reference, putting aside greed and distress, that's like referring to your body in relationship to the world. Okay, so being with the body in and of itself, not my body as tall or my body as skinny or my body as uh, sick or my body as healthy or my body as wanting or not good enough, but just feeling the body as a body. Feeling your feelings as feelings. Imagine feeling your feelings without feeling them and explaining them. This is the key in psychotherapy, is actually finding creative ways of getting your clients uh, to be able to report on their feelings without coming out of them. This is the trick. How can you describe what you're feeling and stay in the feeling without jumping out and going on top and analyzing it top down? And you know when that happens? It happens when the therapist can also be fully present to what you're feeling. And then together, there's this co-arising of, of space for you to explore what, what's going on. And then I love how the Buddha says, this is called the faculty of mindfulness. 
and is the end of stress. All the stress from running away. How much stress from from running away? Um, I taught this on the retreat uh, this past weekend. We worked on this passage. And uh, in an interview, somebody said, um, I think I understood what you meant by that. I said, oh, yeah. How so? And she said, basically means not flinching. I really liked that. As a kind of meditation technique, not flinching. And you know, there's actually an image that I've always loved of concentration practice that the Buddha gives of um, a candle with no wind. You know, when we can be fully in something until the point where there's burning, but without flinching, without so much flinching. And that's how healing happens, right? Being fully intimate, even sometimes with another person present, uh, with what is, without so much shifting and trying to get out of there. And, yeah. and then what does this come to in the end? It, it shows us, you know, what brings us contentment and what doesn't. And part of what we're doing in the precepts course is to tie this together with our conduct in the world. What brings me happiness and what doesn't? In body, speech, and mind. When I speak in this way, it doesn't make me happy. And when I say these other words, it does make me feel content. Or when I speak in this way, it doesn't make other people happy. Thich Nhat Hanh says, you know, language can heal and hurt. (coughs) So the paradox of meditation is all this stuff that arises um, can either be an obstacle and a hindrance or it can be exactly what you need to wake up. The Buddha says, if you get shot by a thorn, um, or if you could imagine like a really big sliver, you need a thorn to get it out. Or if you fall on the ground, you need the ground to get back up. So we actually take the content of what's showing up in our practice, which is your life, and we work with it. And I really hope that one of the things you're hearing in this practice is that yes, everything needs to be included. And also sometimes we can't do it ourselves. So we need uh, these practices that we're doing together and this space and each other. And sometimes even that's not enough. And we need to make sure that we're finding people who can really support us in our practice so that it's real And we're not bypassing. I've done it. It's not worth it. You know, it's not worth it. You can have really deep realization in your practice. And I know some of you have this. And still not deal with developmental uh, issues 
that need attention. What we're trying to become in this practice are real people, just a real person. Imagine a community of real people. <laughs> it's a bit scary, actually, really, to think about that. Probably all run. What's that? We probably all run. I'll run away. So I, I think I'll stop there, um, unless anybody has any questions or comments. We'll we'll go through this in more depth over the next few weeks, but I feel like I just wanted to, you know, spread some psychology theory out before we before we go deeper. Yeah. The passage? Yeah, I'll repeat that as our ending. Majiminakaya. Um next week I'll I'll give you the exact uh, number. Yeah. Uh And what is the faculty, there's actually two translations, here's a different translation. And what is the faculty of mindfulness? There is a case where a bhikkhu, a disciple of the noble ones, is mindful, highly meticulous, remembering, and able to call to mind even things that were done and said a long time ago. She remains focused on the body in and of itself. Ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. She then remains focused on feelings, just as they are, the mind, just as it is, mental qualities in and of themselves. She stays ardent, alert, and mindful putting aside distress with reference to the world. This is called the faculty of mindfulness and is the end of stress. Did you memorize that? No. Maybe next week I'll hand it out. We need a photocopier if anybody wants to donate one. (laughs) Let's finish chanting.